This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guide along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With Embrace the Black Cube, we discuss Monty Cook's fourth design diary. And then with Reflecting a Different Truth, we discuss surreal war stories. Join us on the path of suns and we may uncover a secret or two. In Embrace the Black Cube, we talk about Monty Cook's ongoing design diaries. This time, we're going to be talking about long-form magic. So, Invisible Sun, magic is very important in this setting. It's one of the, I guess, cornerstones of this whole project, I would... I mean, would you agree with that? Oh, I believe that's fair to say. Yeah, surrealism and magic that's done in a way that's different than other RPGs that you've made may have played before though i guess we've we've talked about the major schools at this point the major orders uh, we've seen how they all handle magic in different and interesting ways uh, we haven't talked about apostates yet but don't worry they're they're coming but uh, now we're going to be talking about long form magic and the way uh, that monty describes this is that this is more of the story-based magic so a lot of what the orders were doing uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the magic that is described for the orders uh, is smaller effects. Though I don't know, that's not quite right, is it? Because as we were discussing before, goetics are going to be talking with demons, and that might not be a short process. That might be more of an ordeal. And makers also likely will take time in creating whatever it is that they're making. But I think that most of what we think of when we think of casting spells in RPGs from other games does come from a a mode of casting something on the order of seconds in order for it to take effect. Mm -hmm. And so that is sort of the mindset a lot of us have coming into the game. And a lot of the spells are likely to have that sort of form, like whatever the Invisible Sun version of Magic Missile would be, would be a kind of a stereotypical spell. But the design diary is talking about the sort of castings that are likely the stuff of entire stories and entire sessions, or even cross multiple sessions. Yeah. So um, here's our story-based magic. Uh, we're not going to be talking about small little stuff. And uh, Monty's design diary does say that it was uh, inspired by fiction and occult tomes. We're not going to dig too deep into occult tomes here, uh, but it is an interesting source to pull this from. Um, and like you said, these uh, these spells are going to have non-trivial ingredients uh, and tools, and they may require multiple casters. And when I was initially reading through this, I, I kept thinking back to you know the bigger spells that you would cast in uh, various editions of Dungeons and Dragons. I'm going to be going back to that as you know my reference point because hey, everybody. Pretty much everybody's played Dungeons and Dragons or knows what I'm talking about when I when I bring it up. Um, but there were big spells in Dungeons and Dragons that 
I guess they never really required anything that was terribly hard to obtain or tools that were complex to such a degree that it would require a story for it to be discovered or found. I mean, it was usually more of a plot device if you were looking for something like that, but not something you found in the player's handbook. And, and there have been some exceptions where if you like read the details, the spell casting time was actually minutes rather than rounds or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, in 5th edition, there's the option to sp- cast something as a ritual, which turns a a, a six-second spell into like a 10-minute spell uh, at, so that you can get advantages. But still, at the foundation, it's one of those quick six-second spells. You just took longer to cast it. But I yeah. think what uh, Monty's trying to get at here is something much more complicated in the story, in the narrative itself. So you have uh, complex ingredients and multiple stages of actions, and a whole chapter in a book would be devoted to the process of casting the spell, rather than just a sentence in the book that says, waves hands and shoots f- uh, darts of force at the orc or whatever it would be. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that there might be whole chapters dedicated to these sorts of spells because these are spells that you can obtain from uh, what are referred to as monographs, uh, books or recipes or basically the written form, which is a step-by-step process for how your character would cast this sort of spell. Because as it, my, my understanding from the design diary is that you can purchase this long-form magic, you can purchase a long-form spell with experience points, just like you could any other spell. But if you're only going to be casting this sort of spell once, then you're going to probably want to just find a monograph and cast it that way. Right. If you're looking for the special binding circle for the demon gurush or something, um, you don't want to spend your experience points for that to learn that as a spell because hopefully you only have to bind the great demon gurush once. Mm-hmm. But it could be a really fun story to say, oh, well, we need to bind this great demon. Uh, let's go find that particular ritual. Uh, how are we going to find the ritual? Then when you find it, oh, well, it requires these three interesting ingredients. We better go get those. Oh, and actually conducting this is going to, in fact, uh, be in some sense an entire encounter of itself with multiple stages and parts because the great demon Garush doesn't want to be bound. Uh, So uh, it it, 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 it can be an entire story around that one particular spell. And then likely you'll never have the binding of great demon Garush again. It's just that one time. Right. Uh, And that's, that's one example that I think we might see just this open-ended sort of effect. Um, but in the design diary, he does point, uh, he does point to a spell called beseech, which is an invocation that, uh, attempts to contact a higher power. So you can ask that higher power something. Uh, and this, this ties into the open-ended effects that these, long-form spells are aimed to have. Uh, Instead of, you know, magic missile that says, hey, you're going to deal, you know, 1d4 points of damage per bolt. uh, This is, hey. What? Plus one. Oh, sorry, plus one. Ugh. uh, (laughs) I'm not a player. I'm a DM. I don't uh, don't know what the rules for magic missile are anymore. The the effect here, it's it's more open-ended. Like, you contact a higher power... And it allows you to have some sort of meeting, perhaps, 
maybe you just send a question out into the ether. Uh, who knows? It's it's wide open, and that sort of stuff isn't going to be defined uh, as much as you know the smaller magic effects are. It reminds me of a lot of stories. When, when I think of these occult tomes and, and fiction in particular, you know, I think of Lovecraftian fiction just because that's where a lot of my interests are. And you don't see people seeking after the Necronomicon because they can learn Magic Missile or its equivalent, not even Fireball. Uh, they, t- you know, they look for the Necronomicon or whatever the, you know, Inexproclican uh, Colton. Oh, yeah, of course. Whatever that, you know, any of these uh, these tomes, because there's some ritual that they want to learn that will then take them maybe even the work of a lifetime to conduct. And they're complicated and they require all of these exotic ingredients and they will, you know, uh, in the world if they're cast when the stars are right. But it's these really big sorts of spells that are, are the stuff of stories um, and as opposed to commodities or simple tools as a magic missile sort of spell would be. And it's not that those spells are bad. Um, it's that they play a different role in the story. So those that's much more the equivalent of the section in the story where they're choosing which gun to have um, than the backbone of an entire narrative, like uh, the ritual that... Um, as it uh, Kerwin used to, uh, to to preserve his body and his essential salts, that sort of ritual uh, based upon an ancient tome, I think, is the, the sort of story-rich spell uh, that we're talking about when we talk about story-based long-form magic. Uh, and yeah, that that sort of reminds me that uh, one of the aims of these spells is to put more control of the narrative into the hands of the players, uh, and that's called out in the design diary that. Here, your your players are going to get these tools to try and find solutions to their problems. And one thing I was trying to figure out with this is how do you really encourage your players to take the reins here and you know look through these spells and say, hey, this this thing might help us out. Let's let's go down this path and start putting this big spell together and like it's a problem that I've been trying to figure out. Like how do you get those players to drive that story a little bit more so that they know they can, they can do that sort of thing. Yeah. It it requires some practice and players need to have permission and they, they need to know that they have permission to do that sort of writing because what they're doing in some sense is they're writing a new adventure for themselves that they will then go on. Uh, they may be saying, oh, well, I don't know what to do about this. And they need to have permission to say, I think a ritual spell will solve this problem. So let's figure out what the ritual will consist of. And they're writing the requirements of the scenario for you. Uh, uh, they're, they're kind of filling in the details of a night's worth of adventure as they put together the ritual. But a lot of players don't feel confident to do that. I'm reminded uh, a good uh, friend of mine who I played with back in high school and and do still actually uh, was teaching his uh, teenage son Dungeons and Dragons for the first time, playing with him for the first time. And a bunch of his friends and all of them had been raised, all the son and his friends had been raised on video games. And so it was a completely eye-opening experience to them when this friend as a DM said, okay, what do you do? (laughs) What can we do? Like you can do anything you want to do. 
well, what are my action choices? Because they were looking for buttons. Like, I can hit the X button or the S button, and it'll do these things. Because that's what they're used to with video games. It's like, no, you can solve this problem however you want. Look at your... Uh, you know, your inventory, look at your spells, look at your abilities, use them in whatever way you want. Just convince me it'll work. And this was a, you know, mind opening experience. And, uh, and that was within a relatively closed system where the, the actions and spell consequences are well-defined. That was like in traditional Dungeons and Dragons, Mm -hmm. uh, where there's a lot of narrative room compared to video games, but Invisible Sun's aspiring to be even more than that where uh, it is not going to be as the spells are not going to be as clearly defined as the spells in Dungeons and Dragons. And so players will need another level of permission to say, um, we can't get into this castle. So uh, this may call for a ritual. And I think that ritual might require these three ingredients and can only be cast at this particular time of day or under this particular sun uh, or under, you know, something or uh, under a sooth of this particular set or something along those lines. Uh, and then kind of negotiate with the GM. Like, is, is this a fair set of requirements? And the whole time as the GM, I'd be taking notes saying, okay, now how can I turn that into a night's gaming? Yeah. Okay. These three ingredients, this one you can buy, but the, this you're gonna have to negotiate for. And this one you're going to have to go find. <laughs> uh, and that's a whole different relationship between the players and the game than people might be accustomed to in some other RPGs. Uh, but that's one of the things I'm, I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, uh, I, I am very encouraged when I read these design diaries and I see notes in here that say, you know, put this sort of control into the player's hands. You know, encourage those players to you know, interact with the story in a way that perhaps you haven't done before. And there are a lot of systems out there that do throw a lot of the responsibility onto the players. And it's, it's a big shift when you're coming from something like Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and even from like the Cypher system, which is, it has a couple of hooks in there with, you know, major and minor effects that you can, you can ask your players for ideas for those. But in general, I mean, that feels like a traditional RPG and, you know, it still feels like the story is something that the GM is guiding and building for the players to interact with. Right. And something we haven't heard a lot of in the uh, uh, design notes and the uh, Kickstarter updates, but also indicates a similar philosophy is the notion that players will define their own character arc. Mm-hmm. and that that's going to influence how stories progress. And I'm hoping that will serve as a signal to players that they have permission, that if they're going to choose a particular story arc, that does mean, or character arc, I'm sorry, if they're choosing a character arc, that also means they're, they have some authorial authority, that they can say, I want this game to include this character arc, and so I'm going to have to step in and, and say, oh, well, let's, let's, let's move the, the story a bit in the direction of my character arc occasionally. Uh, not so much that they exclude others, uh, but just to make sure that they know they have uh, some authority to shape the narrative, and it's not just a passive experience that they are sitting through as the GM writes a story. Yeah. Um. One other thing I wanted to touch on is that uh, we were calling back to a whole bunch of Dungeons & Dragons magic. Uh, And I think one spell in particular is important to take a look at here. And that would be Wish, which is (laughs) a spell that's existed in 
pretty much every edition of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, was it in fourth edition? I'm guessing it probably was. But I I'm pretty sure know. it was. Yeah, but Wish Wish feels like Wish reads like uh, what this long form magic reads like. Wish is, hey, you get a wish and you can wish for you know basically whatever you want, and it's up to you to come up with what you're looking for, and then you. I guess have a negotiation with the DM and, you know, they'll figure out, you know, how that wish is going to be fulfilled and probably try and twist it on you because, you know, that's that's how you should do all good wishes in a role-playing game or fiction. Um, but uh, there are other spells in Dungeons & Dragons that were, you know, big, big spells that weren't meant to be used on a frequent basis um and i forget where i read this there was some article uh or maybe it was on a podcast that i was listening to that was that they were talking where the article was writing about um how these high level spells you know were basically game breaking and they weren't supposed to be used they were just sort of like a narrative tool to you know impact the game in an interesting way and then it's it's a wide open way for you to interpret and play with, and that's what this long form stuff sort of feels like. Yes, uh, except I believe the entire system is going to be built around the notion that you can't break something that's already in little pieces, and that the world itself is going to be so formless uh, and open to redefinition through the story and the narrative that you won't really be breaking anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, much like ciphers in the cipher system, some of those ciphers are just crazy powerful, uh, and not, not just the so-called extreme ciphers, but even the basic, you know, roll one d, you know, one d hundred ciphers you can get will just completely break encounters. And when Monty was asked about that, uh, I don't know if via email or in some post on the cipher system, he's like, yeah, that's 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 part of the game. The whole idea is this is designed to be for encounters to be somewhat swingy. In part so that you don't build your stories such that a player that happens to have a singularity cipher uh, can end and can render moot your whole campaign because uh, of the roll of the dice. Don't make your campaigns dependent upon a single combat. Mm-hmm. And so, so if this they it makes you design uh, games or that is uh, like campaigns that are durable to the sort of swinginess and randomness of ciphers. Well, here, the goal will be designing campaigns and stories that are durable to a rather uh, extreme bounds of what magic can consist of. And just start thinking, okay, well, when players can do almost anything uh, and they just have to negotiate and how they do it, what kind of stories do we want to tell? And I, I find that to be really exciting. And on that note, I think we should move on and talk about war stories. <laughs> I think we have uh, gotten a lot of discussion out of this, and we'll we'll see a lot more of, as we start to actually see systems. This is all just hinting at how magic is going to work, uh, but it is exciting, and it, it does seem to indicate that, that magic is going to be really magical and open, and players will have tremendous uh, opportunities to define stories based on their use of magic. In Reflecting a Different Truth, we discuss how to make elements of an Invisible Sun campaign surreal. In this segment, we will discuss different themes one can draw from the notion that the setting begins in the aftermath of the war. 
So the setting of Invisible Sun has not been defined in a great deal of detail just yet. And we don't know a lot about uh, where uh, about the world, uh, other than it's a surreal, toned world. Uh, one thing we know, though, is that players are returning to the actuality, or returning to the uh, uh, Ceterine after having uh, fled something called the war. We don't really know much about the war. We don't know who were fighting in the war, uh, why they were fighting, what war looks like <laughs> under the indigo sun, uh, who won or who lost, if anyone did. But we know there was a war, and there seems to have been a lot of destruction caused by the war. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about how to use common stories related to previous wars, uh, particularly po you know, post-war stories from a U.S. perspective, uh, as potential inspiration for an Invisible Sun campaign or elements of such a campaign, and then how to make those uh, stories uh, surreal, or at least to, to have surreal elements of those stories. So I wanted to talk about really three different wars and stories that have been attributed to those wars or commonly come out of, of those wars. Uh, World War I, uh, World War II, and Vietnam. Again, uh, any of these wars are sufficiently complex that you can tell many, many different stories. And none of the wars have a, uh, a monopoly on any of these particular themes, but I want to pick out some of the themes that are most commonly associated with these wars. Um, one that's come up in discussion before is World War, the post-World War I sense of disillusionment. Uh, this has come up before in talking about the Surrealist movement, that part of the context in which the Surrealist artists were creating their works of art was a sense that World War I revealed the fragility uh, and maybe even the falsity of reason and the promise of enlightenment. That the enlightenment tradition said, oh, we're, uh, humanity is just getting better and smarter all the time. And the world's just going to improve. Equality will continue to increase. Uh, human freedom will inevitably increase. And we're just getting better at humaning all the time because we're just better humans. Uh, then World War I happens, and we realize we are, in fact, terrible, terrible beasts uh, with great technologies that can tear up other beasts in, in, with numbers and efficiency. And maybe all of that belief in enlightenment was overstated. And so one of the themes coming out of World War I for the Surrealists was the sense of disillusionment. So the uh, World War I was the first display of like modern technology in a war, correct? Yeah, I think it is fair to say it was the first implementation of kind of the tools of the industrial revolution applied wholeheartedly to warfare. So, so there were, I'm sorry, there was, so there were guns before. Um, there were, um, you know, vehicles like we think of today before, uh, but you you see the mass use and production of machine guns. You see the mass usage of chemical weapons. You see the scale of battles increasing just way beyond anything anyone's ever seen before. 
when we're talking in you know Greek terms and hundreds and thousands of combatants, now we're talking at tens of thousands of combatants in any given war front. And so it was just a whole altogether different scale of warfare. So prior to that, people were looking at this industrial revolution and saying, hey, things are going to be great. And then we ripped apart Europe with it. <laughs> Absolutely. And so that's, that's a, a, a symptom of that disillusionment, that this tool that was thought of as a way to increase human prosperity by mass producing things, giving everyone access to things that, they, that very few had access to before, and opening up possibilities for uh, technology that uh, had been unheard of in previous generations could also be used to you know, deconstruct human bodies at an incredible rate as well, and uh, in ways that had really never uh, been seen before. Uh, and there had been, of course, terrible wars. And um, there's a, a, another uh, eerie parallel to contemporary times is you also had actually an advance in medicine that had a kind of unanticipated effect that in world or in the, in the say the Civil War uh, several decades before, uh, if you lost a limb uh, or you got shot uh, in all but the most trivial of places, you're probably dying, if not immediately, then in the near future. Because if the wound doesn't kill you, the sepsis will, hmm. um, or the infection will kill you. The advancement in medicine made the uh, survival of wounds more possible. And thus something you see after World War I that, while not completely unknown before, was never known in this proportion, is you see the wounded returning to society after the war. And so you have people, you have amputees and people with visible uh, scars that never would have survived in previous wars. They're now trying to reintegrate into society. And that's very troubling for the people who weren't in war. And I'm sure it's troubling for those who were in war mm -hmm. because that f forces people to face the cost of war that was easier in previous generations to forget because those people were died and, and were buried at this point. They weren't walking around and forcing you to see what the cost of war is in a physical and present way. And that's something that would be relatively simple to implement in a, uh, in a, in a surreal setting by uh, playing up the ravages of war on the bodies of the survivors of the war in uh, Invisible Sun. That if the war itself left all of these marks on those affected by the war, they represent and embody the costs of the war. Um, and that can be used and you can kind of amplify that effect uh, in order to bring this theme from World War I into an Invisible Sun campaign. I think that might be a little more difficult to, to hit here because mm -hmm. the Vizsle in Invisible Sun, they like to reshape their bodies at changeries. So that might mask the effects of the war in some way. Though Visley are not the only citizens of Saturn, so perhaps it's you know something that you can uh, have examples of in other places. Uh, right, and but there are still two ways. In addition, so there are two other ways. In addition to seeing the effect on the bodies of those who are not Visley and can't modify their own bodies, I can think of two ways you could still include this. Uh, first, there may be some types of war wounds that are not changeable. 
by the Vizlay body shaping magic. So and something like one of the cysts of war that affects people? Maybe something along those lines, right. And it, that might make the wound all the more remarkable because it has now rendered this person incapable of controlling their own form, mm -hmm. which is something that is taken as a given among the Vizlay. Uh, so that could have a great psychological impact. Uh, also, you might have Vizlay who were wounded in the war and want to remind people of the cost of the war, mm -hmm. and therefore they refuse to change their body, uh, to repair it or whatever it may be, to, to recover their original form or whatever, to move to whatever form they want, because to do so would be to cover up the war, and they don't want to do that. They want to force people to confront uh, the damage to their body. So I could see both of those being options even among the Vizlay. Uh, to incorporate this theme into the story. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So there's that's one theme just from World War One, but of course there's other wars we can talk about. Other themes. Uh, World War Two was not without its disillusioning uh, 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 experiences, but that's not the dominant narrative from the U.S. perspective. Uh, I think it would be. Uh, an interesting theme to look at from World War II would be to look at the post-war recovery. And you think of things like uh, the uh, uh, the recovery of Europe after World War II and the role of the U.S. and particularly the U.S. military in Japan after World War II. And this notion that after war comes investment and growth experienced either from the economic boom on the U.S. side of its internal economy um, or through something like the uh, the efforts of the U.S. to invest in, uh, in formerly war-torn countries because we, you know, uh, the U.S. was lucky not to have a lot of the war activity on its own soil, uh, but it then poured money into those other countries. So post-war as a moment of recovery – and uh, might be an interesting theme of itself, and very different than the themes we're talking about with World War One. <laughs> uh, Post-war, the way you're putting that makes it sound like it's pretty good, like it's fairly optimistic. It could be. I mean, that's that, again. This is we're we're trying to change gears as radically yeah. as possible uh, to illustrate the variety of themes one can tell. One could tell a story and have a campaign after the war in the Invisible Sun that focuses on the optimism of rebuilding the world after this great war. So the focus wouldn't be on the terrors of the war uh, or constant reminders of the violence and uh, destruction of the war. The constant the, the focus would be on starting from this moment of destruction, how you rebuild and how you turn that energy forward towards uh, growth and unity. Yeah, and that's a, that would be a good counterpoint to what I usually think of in a post-war environment, which is not optimistic, but you know, fairly depressing and disillusioned, uh, like you were saying before. Uh, so that would, that would be a nice tone to have uh, in your holster. Yeah, and uh, it, it can be mixed in in various ways. Uh, you could put these tones sort of in f different factions, and some parts of the city may be thinking of this as an, this great opportunity for growth. Uh, and they really want to, while they they don't mean to trivialize the costs, mm -hmm. they really want to focus on moving forward. Uh, whereas another faction is saying, no, we need to see what this has revealed about the nature of magic and the nature of reality. And we, you, you have to look at the costs and, you know, look at these torn bodies and face them. And, you know, that's an interesting conflict in and of itself. Or you could choose one to be the predominant tone and have uh, the, uh, 
uh, the the campaign be more optimistic in this in the second case, and it's about coming out of war and how you can bring people together through rebuilding after war. Yeah, that's a of that's course, an interesting idea. In the, in the U.S. experience, this one might say this didn't last very long because uh, very soon we moved from World War II into the Cold War. But imagine a much more extended uh, post-war bliss. From the U.S. experience, World War II, where you have the post-war economic boom, you have the emergence of the baby boomers. That's that that's they were the babies who were booming, mm-hmm. uh, and that was in part driven by the economic growth. Uh, the they were coming out of the, uh, the coming out of the war was also coming out of the Great Depression. You have dramatic changes in how we structured society. You have uh, the emergence of what we think of as the kind of when we visualize as the modern middle class. You have what are often thought of as these positive unifying developments uh, that, that eventually culminate, you might, one could argue, in things like the space program, uh, investments in science and technology, some of which may have been motivated by the Cold War also, but we're going to downplay that for the moment. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I've played enough board games. Um, trying to think of the specific one. Twilight Struggle? That's it. I've played enough Twilight Struggle to know you always burn your cards for the space race at the end of your turn. <laughs> right, and so, uh, so but I'm you know, taking the most opposite extreme of World War One. You could take World War Two and think, it, play down the Cold War part of it, and just say, look, there was this remarkable surge in energy and optimism coming out of World War II uh, in the U.S. and use that as a model for a, a positive campaign. So it becomes one about recovery and exploration, rather than dwelling upon the disillusioning experience of war. Though it certainly would have been fair to look back on World War II and say, wow, this taught us a lot about the limitations of human nature as well and the terrible things humans will do to each other. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely a fair reading of World War II. Um, So like I said, none of these themes are owned entirely by one war or the other. Uh, But I think you're you're more likely to find uh, examples of movies – uh, coming after World War II that portray that period of as one of excitement and growth and unification uh, than you were after World War I, uh, yeah. just as, as an example. Now, you know, we may look back on those as being naive uh, and uh, possibly even uh, kind of disingenuous stories, but that is that could be the basis uh, for kind of a theme that you use in a campaign. Uh, and I wanted to also include, you know, we, we had these nice two world wars as nice as examples, not as nice experiences of human history. But uh, a third example that I think allows us to, to introduce another potential theme and talk about how to incorporate it in, in, into Invisible Sun would be the U.S. experience uh, following the Vietnam War. So this was different. It was not a world war in the traditional sense. It doesn't have the scale that the world wars did. Uh, but it certainly had a major effect on the U.S. culture and could also be used to tell a different kind of story in Invisible Sun. And here you might focus on one of the major stories emerging out of Vietnam, and that is the challenge of the returning warriors. Mm-hmm. And kind of the origins of the modern discussion of PTSD, though that term wasn't as popular at that time, um, but how how the these the soldiers many of them wounded, many of them scarred by their experiences uh, in the war, have to come back to the homeland uh, and then reintegrate. And the challenges present there, uh, especially if the, the homeland that they're trying to return to may not have much respect for the work that they did. Uh, that you 
and I remember watching Born on the Fourth of July when I was a kid, and that I think kind of sums up this whole um, challenge of the returning warriors, like trying to get back into society and not really being able to, you know, reintegrate yourself, you know, feeling like an outsider. Yeah, my favorite example of this is the deer hunter, which I find to be an incredibly powerful and moving film about this experience that doesn't quite have the showy sort of, well, it has a few of them, um, but it, it's it's it not quite as, yeah, at least one. Uh, it's not quite as woven into American history. It's a much more personal story than a political story. But it's a moving account of a, a group of friends who went off to Vietnam and then came back, uh, and not all of them came back whole, you might say, mm-hmm. um, that many of them were affected greatly by the war. Uh, and you, you could use that as a model for tone as well to say, like, how can we talk about you know, these Vizlay, uh It says they're returning after war. Maybe some of them are returning because they hid during the war. Uh, others, I think it would likely be fair to have uh, Vizlay who were returning uh, and they at least spent some time in the war itself. And so they're having to deal with their role in the war and they're dealing with how other people treat those who fought in the war and what the war revealed about themselves and other Vizlay uh, and how they reconcile all, all of that. Yeah, that would be uh, another interesting way to go with a campaign story here. Yeah, I mean, if you want, Deer Hunter is very realist in many ways. Some of the plot is not realist, but the tone of Deer Hunter is realist. So it's going to be hard to adapt directly, uh, though the emotional tones are going to be, uh, I think, inspirational. For a more surrealist version of similar tones, uh, Full Metal Jacket might be a good place to look. And so you have, so some people call it kind of two movies crammed into one. Uh, the exaggerated nature of a lot of the elements of those movies might be closer to the surreal tone one would expect in Invisible Sun. Do you have anything more that this has brought to mind or inspired uh, for Invisible Sun games? For Vietnam, there are a whole lot of movies that you can pull from for inspiration. Uh, and the ones that we went over here were... Uh, the Deer Hunter, um, Born on the Fourth of July. What was the last one that you just mentioned? Oh yeah, uh, Full Metal Jacket. Uh, there was another one that I watched when I was in high school, which was Platoon, which I'm sure most people have seen. Then again, that is an old movie now, and I shouldn't assume that. <laughs> um, <laughs> those, those all are. Yeah, and those are all movies. Oh, there's Apocalypse Now, which doesn't really deal with the aftermath of the war, but... It does deal with, you know, the very surreal nature of, you know, being in that war, you know, what that could have felt like. It's fair to say it deals with the surreal elements of war, if not the surreal elements of the war. Yeah. Uh, so there, there are a lot of great Vietnam-inspired movies that I think would be well worth watching, just so that you can get an idea of the tone that they're shooting for. If this is the sort of, you know, more serious campaign you want to run um and then there's there's all sorts of great movies from world war ii i can't really think of too many from world war one but uh had we prepared a whole you know watching list i bet we could have uh, come up with something but i guess we didn't get into movies until we started talking about it 
<laughs> yeah, and we might be able to throw some more movies into the show notes. Uh, but I, I, it is fair to say that on the surreal front, and as inspiration for surreal storytelling, Vietnam is overrepresented <laughs> in yeah, film. Probably. World War II clearly has more films if you're just counting heads. But a lot more of the Vietnam or of the World War II films are either realist or celebrationist yeah. of war, um, and uh, won't necessarily be as inspirational for a surreal story. Um, though there may again, there may be some exceptions we can draw attention to in the show notes as we put those together. World War One is grossly underrepresented in film, uh, maybe because it happened before film was quite as popular uh, as it would become later. But there, uh, none of those really come to mind right now. Yeah, the the only thing that's coming to mind is our previous discussion when we were talking about the Sandman and how that felt a lot like um, you know post World War One, you know how how that world was and you know how the Sandman seemed to be inspired by that. Yeah. And there's other things that are kind of one order removed, something we may have to come back to and talk about another time. The Captain of Dr. Caligari, which is regarded as the first horror film ever made was filmed in the aftermath of world war one. And certainly the war casts a giant shadow over that entire film and really the films of that period. So there's some indirect ties, but thinking about narratives that directly inter- interact or intersect with World War One is a little tough. I, I mean, I can think of some that aren't really surreal, like uh, Paths of Glory, the Kirk Kubrick film. Um, there's mm-hmm. some, uh, All's Quiet on the Western Front, but there's very few, like World War II, there's few surreal ones. There, There's also fewer celebrationist stories about how awesome World War One was, right. but... Uh, there are just fewer movie, movies overall, and surrealism was not as much a part of that just yet. Uh, but if we think of some, we can add them to the show notes. Well, we should we should definitely watch Dr. Caligari. This is a yet more reason for us to do so, and I, I am always open to that. Well, I, I will have to find a copy of it, because now I'm very curious. I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube, because it is public domain at this point. I think we talked about this in a previous show, now that you've mentioned that. Maybe previous episodes are casting shadows as well. Well, there we go. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games you can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find me at Dr. Scott Robinson on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. So leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. We hear it helps people find the show. Uh, Or tell a friend about the show, and that would be another great way to help us out. Thanks.